0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, Media Watch looks at how critics are calling for less toxic talkback on the radio in the wake of the John Banks magic talk incident last week. And we look at a media campaign piling on the pressure to pay for a super expensive miracle drug out of the public purse. Also, how the media milked suspicions of special treatment for a sports star's family. I can imagine only been done to try and generate some headlines and clickbait, which is, you know, brutal for us to read as a family and people that we know. Before all that, proposals that could change the way we all live in future came out this week. The devil was in the detail, but some in the media missed the point. The Climate Change Commission has unveiled a report outlining major changes, including the way New Zealand builds homes, a ban on controversial car imports and reducing livestock numbers by 15%. That was RNZ's Nicola right there with the story that led the news at 8 o'clock on Monday morning for RNZ and most other news outlets too that day. And that report, which had come out the afternoon before, is seen by many as a blueprint for how we might have to live and produce in the future, whether we like it or not, in order to get carbon emissions down. Now this is big stuff for the whole country and for every individual household and consumer. And at 6pm on Sunday night, it led TVNZ's evening news as well.
0: No more gas connections,
1: an end to coal use and a phasing out of conventional cars. The Climate Commission's released its draft plan on how to slash the country's emissions, saying targets will not be met without strong and decisive action.
2: This is one of the most
1: significant pieces of work that this government will undertake. Now in that TVNZ report the Prime Minister and the Climate Change Minister James Shaw were facing reporters clutching copies of that report which was actually two documents, one outlining the Commission's advice to the government and then a longer one with the evidence to backstop their conclusions. And there was a lot in them for reporters to take in and explain to us all in their coverage and what was no easy task was made even harder by the way it was all released. Both documents had been made public just an hour before the minister's press conference at 2pm. And the first most journalists knew exactly about what was in the document came in a joint press release issued by the Prime Minister's office at 9.30 on Sunday morning. Now it turned out that some reporters had been given a heads up on one or both reports under embargo, though potentially commercially sensitive budget numbers in them had been redacted. So several media outlets were able to publish timely, what you need to know type reports. But none of the reporters we've spoken to was able to see any of the details before last Thursday. And some reporters had no advanced access at all, even if they asked for it last week. Now one of those who missed out was Richard Harmon of the subscription-based news site politic.co.nz and he made this point in his coverage of the report on Monday.
3: Unfortunately, because of the way it was released, it's been impossible to analyse but sector groups and NGOs will start to do that today on the basis of what's likely to be the year's most consuming political debate.
1: And he was far from the only reporter who was unhappy about all this, because to them, the decisions on who did and who didn't get a heads up all seemed a bit arbitrary, leading to suspicions that the Climate Change Commission might be playing favourites, or that they didn't trust certain reporters, or perhaps their outlets. So I called the Climate Change Commission chair, Dr Rod Carr, who happened to be at a wedding in Waitangi weekend at the time, and I asked him, is that what the commission was up to?
4: we did, in limiting the choice, focus on those who had already expressed a continuing interest in understanding the complexity of the issues that climate change raises. But there was no intention to try and avoid the inevitable headlines that that these kind of things will provoke. That, That is, to me, just part of what is the ebb and thrust of uh, public discourse in a democracy.
1: But you didn't want, say, stories about their snuffing out your barbecue coming out on the Saturday morning. You really wanted the focus to be on the guts of the report and uh, you know the, the lined-up reporting on Sunday night and Monday morning.
4: Yes, although, actually, to be fair, Colin, I wasn't worried about the conversations of, of sensational headlines. I was genuinely concerned about the market-sensitive data, that uh, reading between the lines, or actually reading the lines, uh, early uh, could have set up a game in which we could have been accused of uh, being naive about the impact our advice was going to have on asset prices and values. And, and, and that would have been damning.
1: Well, in, in May, which I guess is next time, you'll be presenting the final advice, having considered uh, public submissions and feedback. Even a suggestion of something like a budget-style lock-up, which might be fairer to a greater number of journalists, might be an option. Is that something you think might you might consider?
4: Absolutely. And and in fact, we did, uh, as you know, from my reserve bank days, I'm very familiar with with, uh, those kind of releases and lockups. And we did actually evaluate that. So we have asked the team to think, what have we learnt from this experience? What are our options? How might we do it uh, in a way that is more inclusive next time?
1: Let's hope lessons are learned from this when it comes time to present the final advice from the government in May, because these reports are drafts urging public submissions until mid-March. And the submissions were solicited like this in the
3: report itself. If you're here because you have one big thing to tell us, you can do that here. If this is all you want to provide by way of submission, that's fine by us. We'll consider all the submissions we receive.
1: However, on News Talk ZB last Monday, Kerry McIver told her listeners it wouldn't make any difference if they did.
3: I mean, it is only a draft report. You can
1: put your submissions in, but you might as well be talking to your bum, really if you think you're going to make any changes whatsoever. While Kerry McIver reckoned we should get used to the carbon cutting changes in the report, others on talk radio on Monday reckoned it was a bum deal. Not always with reference, though, to what was actually in the report. For example, on News Talk ZB's early edition show earlier on Monday, host Tim Dower told his early rising audience he was alarmed by the recommended 15% reduction in farm
5: herds. Does that not mean at least 15% less production? Uh, just kind of, you know, uh, back of a uh, handkerchief numbers, 15% production, so 15% less dairy to export, 15% less sheep meat and or 15% less beef uh, uh, and so on and so forth.
1: The Commission's recommended herd reduction doesn't mean that at all. It's quite clear in the report and in the summary of the advice and it's really not hard to find. But Tim Dow went on to tell his listeners this.
5: We know, we heard this only last week, our farmers are pretty much the most carbon-efficient on Earth, on the entire planet. We're really good at it.
1: And that's a big claim. Last week, ag research analysis did find that New Zealand dairy farms had a carbon footprint smaller on average than those in 18 other countries. But, as Stuff reported... That didn't include the likes of the UK, Brazil and Poland because AgResearch used a New Zealand-specific benchmark and not the one that the IPCC uses to make international comparisons on carbon footprints. Anyhow, Newstalk ZB's Tim Dower had a higher opinion of that research than the findings of the Climate Change Commission.
5: Or is there some greater, more deviant plan going on here? Are uh, we all going to have to, all over the world, eat less meat? Are we going to be forced to be vegans? Or maybe it'll just be 15% of us uh, that have to be vegans, compulsory.
1: But any deviant agenda was all in his mind. There's nothing in either of the Climate Change Commission's documents last weekend about veganism, let alone a compulsory quota for the years ahead. And Tim Dower also disapproved of the Commission's makeup. All experts and scientists, he said, but hardly anyone from industry. And there was too much facial hair on the chair.
5: Now you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, uh, but uh, a a bloke with a green party beard and a massive piece of punami, it tells you everything, doesn't it?
1: And Tim Dower's rather deviant pronunciation of punamu tells you a bit too. Two hours later, ZB's morning host Mike Yardley trailed a chat with climate change minister James Shaw like this. We will be raising a range of issues with James Shaw after 7.30. I really want to get into the issue of EVs and some of the practicalities. Like, what the hell are we going to do with the batteries? Do we know? And when are EVs going to start paying road user charges? Hello? And plenty of issues to do with dairying as well. And maybe a bit of cycling with the climate change minister, James Shaw. And in the end, he didn't raise cycling with the minister, but he did grill him about when road user charges would be paid by the drivers of electric cars, though that's not a significant issue in the climate change report. He also asked what he'd do with the old batteries for EVs in future, a significant issue at the moment for consumers and the environment, but not emissions. And Mike Yardley also asked James Shaw at length about whether we should have gene-edited ryegrass growing here on our farms. Now, the report does mention GE advances as something that may change the productivity game for farming in future, but it's not really a climate or emissions reduction factor at the moment, or in the Climate Change Commission's report. Meanwhile, on the AM show at the same time, host Duncan Garner and his sceptical sidekicks were also sidetracked by the apparent roadblock of the appeal of electric cars.
4: I seriously don't think we can, within 10 years, stop petrol cars coming in. Oh, if you base it on something like KiwiBuild, I'd like to see it come in. The problem at the moment is the infrastructure or lack of it for uh, charging cars and stuff, and also the price, man. We just don't not have cheap.
3: But we, just don't, we don't bring that many into yeah. the country. And they're horrible to drive. If someone gave me a Tesla tomorrow,
1: I wouldn't drive it. Duncan Garner was also worried by that recommended 15% cut to farm herds, and he also told his listeners this must mean a corresponding cut in food production. Though when Federated Farmers President Andrew Hoggard popped up on the show minutes later, he said it didn't.
4: How do we do this? How do you have 15% fewer cows going through your shed this morning but produce the same level of milk? I I was never in that economics class and never knew how it worked. (laughs)
0: Um, Well, I mean, our cows can produce quite considerably more than they do at the moment um, if you give them the right conditions. Particularly, you know, take a cow from New Zealand, put it in a barn anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's going to produce a lot more. Um, Our challenge is how do we increase that productivity from those cows?
1: And Andrew Hoggard went on to tell Duncan Garner that, in fact, Kiwi farmers have already proved this in the past.
0: Sheep numbers over... uh, a couple of decades ago, we something like 70 million. Now we're down around 30 or less. And we're still maintaining the same output in terms of um, meat. So, you know, we, our farmers have shown they are able to be a lot more efficient and able to produce more from less. Um.
1: Now, newsroom's Mark Dalder had read that bit of the report, and he knew that it said a herd with fewer cows that maintains the same production through higher production per cow would require less feed overall. And if sheep and beef and dairy animal numbers fall by 15% by 2030, the total volume of milk produced remains flat, the Commission projects, while the total volume of meat produced increases slightly. Now, later on last Monday, dedicated driver and one-time ambassador for Audi cars, Peter Williams, was back on the magic talk
3: station after his long holiday. But this is going to happen. In, in 10 years from now, you will not be able to buy... Uh, a, a, a nice Japanese or European car powered by petrol or diesel. The Commission does recommend winding
1: down imports of fossil fueled light vehicles by 2032, but there will still be plenty to buy and sell for years after that. Indeed, the Commission's report estimates that electric cars will be just 40% of the fleet by 2035. And that's easy to find in the Commission's report too, but Peter Williams didn't see it. Unsurprisingly, perhaps...
0: Yeah, but this whole report—I don't know—haven't read the, the whole thing or anything. Well, no, nobody
3: has really because 800 pages. But uh, it's only come out in Pracy fashion so far.
1: And it's not true that only a Pracy is available now. Both reports, broken down chapter by chapter, have been online since last Sunday afternoon. Peter Williams went on to tell his listeners that none of this would have any impact anyway on the world's weather. Though as one of the most vocal climate change sceptics on the air in New Zealand, Peter Williams knows that climate and the weather are very different things. Later in the day on the same station, drive time host Ryan Bridge was clearly not convinced by the government's message that the transition outlined by the Climate Change Commission was achievable and affordable or even desirable. Why do all of this go through all the effort,
0: reconfigure our economy, decimate some of our industries? When I look to the UK today,
1: they've just approved a new coal mine in Cumbria. And Ryan Bridge was also unconvinced by the electric transition for transport. By 2030,
0: they want 84% of medium-sized trucks... And 69% of heavy trucks, electric. Do, we, do these exist? Are there electric heavy trucks out
1: there? How far do they go? What's the range on these things? Is that realistic? But again, the Commission's report did actually address this. It says that medium and heavy trucks will be slower to electrify because of current battery technology. Of the trucks imported in 2030, the report says, only about 15% of medium trucks and 8% of heavy ones would be electric. But by 2035, these would increase to 84% and 69% respectively because manufacturers overseas are already working on it. Ryan Bridge was also fretting on behalf of farmers and that reduction in herd sizes. And Federated Farmers President Andrew Hoggard, working overtime with the media on Monday, took another call from him to explain, again, what the report actually says about the 15% proposal.
0: They've looked at what is transferring out of livestock into horticulture as a trend. Uh, The efficiencies that we have historically been gaining in agriculture and extrapolated that out to think that, hey, we can maintain production and have 15% less cows. Now, I'd argue they're probably a little too optimistic there. I think we could probably maintain production and with a few extra cows, but perhaps maintaining stock numbers, not increasing um, the amount of gas, um, or even having a slight reduction, but actually increasing production.
1: And after that, Federated Farmers Andrew Hoggard had interesting advice for farmers listening in, and also... Magic Talk listeners.
0: Perhaps they need to actually read the report rather than rely on the reporting of it um, because there is actually quite a bunch of good stuff in there.
1: Now as we've heard there's been a lot of reporting and analysis this week by journalists who understood the significance of what was in these big reports from the Climate Change Commission and they worked hard to sum it all up for the public even if the details were released to them in a way that made that a bigger task than it should have been. But there's also been a lot on the air from people with opinions on the bid to cut emissions over the next 30 years who really didn't engage with what was in the report at all. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the broadcasting company MediaWorks gave its fill-in talkback host John Banks the boot over a racist blurt about Stone Age Maori culture. And, as we heard last week, he said many more offensive things on Magic Talk Radio that day, which didn't make any headlines. In fact, he had some other rather odd things to say on other days filling in on the air as well. Like this, for example, on January the 26th captured over a car radio.
3: You've got to keep a close eye on Ugandan politics. Did you know there's 46 million people that live in Uganda? 46 million people! You'd never get lonely in Uganda, would you? Now, the
1: reason John Banks was talking about Uganda was the recent election result there that was disputed by some of the candidates whose names John Banks found so funny he couldn't stop laughing at them.
5: Listen to this. I've got to for
3: this his, his main rival, <clears throat> a Mr. Bobby spelled B-O-B-I, Bobby Wine W-I-N-E, is alleging widespread fraud.
1: Hello. And all that on the air then prompted this call later from a Magic Talk listener.
3: Now, can you name any current good Somalians or Nigerians? Oh yeah, I think there's Anyone I'm... who's actually done some good? Well, I think there's a lot of Somali people that live in Hamilton and are doing pretty good. No, 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 I... I I'm...
1: Now, sorry about the fuzzy audio there, but there the caller was challenging John Banks, can you name a good Somalian or Nigerian? If you're getting and airing calls like that on your talkback... Something is very wrong. Others in the industry have been publicly pointing out that it's not just a John Banks problem. The station, and talk radio in general, they say, needs to change. Hayden Donnell now takes a look at that.
6: John Banks, having been called up as a fill-in host on Magic Talk, received a racist call. Instead of trying to argue against the caller, he responded by saying something even more offensive. The fallout followed a familiar pattern. People complained, advertisers withdrew. In an effort to stem the bleeding, Cam Wallace, the chief executive of Magic Talk's owner MediaWorks, put out a statement calling Banks' behaviour totally unacceptable. He said the former MP wouldn't get another job at MediaWorks as long as he was chief executive. That was mostly met with a collective sigh of relief. But Cam Wallace didn't just condemn his former villain host.
3: He said this. I'm confident this is an isolated incident because I know the culture here at MediaWorks is inclusive and accepting. The idea that MediaWorks was a
6: company otherwise unblemished by discriminatory rhetoric might have been news to the Broadcasting Standards Authority. In December, it reprimanded MediaWorks, fined it $3,000, and ordered an on-air apology over an interview Magic Talk host Sean Plunkett carried out with Tefano, a our Apanui spokesman Louis Rapihana, about iwi roadblocks. Sean Plunkett asked Louis Rapihana whether his iwi would stage a similar intervention against child abuse. The authorities said the interview reflected ignorance at a level that is offensive and harmful to Māori. Several of MediaWorks' own employees came forward to say John Banks' conduct was a symptom of a wider disease in the company's radio division. Longtime staffer Araha Hathaway wrote an open letter to Cam Wallace asking what systems are going to be put in place to make MediaWorks a safe place to work for Māori. It said...
3: I can tell you the problem is not a one-off and is not isolated. It's not uncommon and has never been properly addressed.
6: Meanwhile, at the media workstation, my FM morning hosts Tegan Kitty, Nixon Clark, and Jordan River detailed their hurt over the fact that John Banks had been broadcasting out of the same building as them.
0: This is a platform we we really hold dearly to our hearts, and we do try so hard to you know be inclusive and um, mm. represent our community. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Yeah.
6: Jordan River added that the incident sat in a larger tradition of media prejudice.
3: Really, media, for, since the beginning of time, unfortunately have perpetuated a narrative about Māori, about people of colour, that have assisted in the masses being able to have these informed opinions.
6: These in-house critics were joined by a chorus of outside complaints. Stuff's Andrea Vance said Talkback Radio had amplified the views of people like Banks and his caller for decades.
3: In pursuit of ratings, Talkback stations have laid out a program of toxic opinions, lies and conspiracy theories, with controversy and outrage their bread and butter. It's a quaint notion that the audience can take it or leave it, and the truth will eventually emerge from a clash of openly expressed ideas.
6: The spin-offs founder Duncan Greeve also argued John Banks was far from an aberration, and that the former politician's chequered history was actually what made him so appealing to Magic Talk in the first place.
3: Banks was not hired despite his views, he was hired because of them. And what happened on Tuesday wasn't an accident. It was inevitable, and in effect deliberate. And it should be clear, unless there are more changes made, it will absolutely happen again. Reading and listening to all that commentary, it would be easy to
6: get the impression MediaWorks' best course of action was to burn Magic Talk studio to the ground and perform an exorcism on the site where it once stood. But Talkback Radio did have its defenders. The spin-offs Alex Bray argued the medium has as much power to
3: unite as it does to divide. He wrote this. The best talk radio shows are able to surprise and delight their listeners, keeping them entertained with more than just shock and schlock. It shouldn't be so hard for programme directors to hire hosts and producers who are able to bring these two basic points together. Over at Newstalk ZB, Simon Barnett and
6: Phil Gifford were adding evidence to the theory that talkback isn't all bad. They spent Wednesday afternoon gently correcting callers who were worried about the COVID-19 vaccine.
5: I'm just reading
0: on the Reuters website, one of the most reputable news organisations in the world, saying that the claim that... Cur- coronavirus deaths in Gibraltar have been caused by the vaccine, not the virus. Being shared on social media, this claim is false.
1: But that was from the Guardian you were
0: reading, Lauren, was it? I believe it was from the Guardian. I mean, you looked. At, I do Did, I don't you, just, did you, know, you, actually you actually read from it, from it on? Did, did you read it online on Facebook that somebody had posted something from the Guardian? Ah. Uh. I can't remember. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. No, that's OK. <laughs> also, I mean, there's many different stories that you hear. so I can...
6: The issue for Magic Talk and for Cam Wallace is that the station isn't exactly renowned for appealing to those better angels of talkback. The new chief executive has said John Banks' behaviour will never be tolerated and that bigotry doesn't have a place at MediaWorks. Now he's faced with the question of whether he's willing to back that statement up with meaningful reform. Given that, we've asked him for an interview not only about Magic Talk but about the future of MediaWorks Radio Arm. He declined this week with a spokeswoman saying he was travelling for work. However, she said Cam Wallace would be keen to talk in future. We'll keep you posted. In the meantime, Magic Talk remains on air, minus one fill-in host, but otherwise essentially unchanged.
1: Aidan Donnell there on the fallout from John Banks getting the boot at Magic Talk for racist comments on air late last month. Tonight we begin an investigation into a miracle drug that is the difference
0: between life and death for a group of very ill Kiwis.
3: But it comes with an eye-watering price tag. National correspondent Patrick Gar is here with all the details in our latest Because It Matters story. That
1: was News Hub at 6 last Monday and Patrick Gower went on to tell viewers about Trikafta, a treatment for cystic fibrosis, an illness which affects more than 500 New Zealanders. But Trikafta isn't subsidised by the national drug buying agency Pharmac and the cost of $460,000 per patient per year has put it out of reach of all but three of them who featured in the News Hub campaign on consecutive nights this week, including teenager Bella Powell.
4: And there's no other way to put it. Like, it's been a miracle.
2: Until now, cystic fibrosis was effectively a death sentence. Those with it don't usually live past 40 and often die as teenagers like Bella was expected to.
1: Now, one hour later on Tuesday, Patrick Gower was back on the Project Show on 3 with more.
2: The drug is there now. It should not come down to whether they can afford it or not. That's what this is about. Let these people live.
1: And the next day, Patrick Gow is back on News Hub's new 11.30 live news show, saying this.
2: Red tape right around the world is keeping them from having this life-saving drug. Yeah, it's tough. And part
5: two tonight, Paddy, what can we expect at six o'clock?
2: Yeah, we have something extraordinary tonight. Only three people uh, that I know of are on this drug in this country because of this cost. We have, obviously, Bella Power, who you've seen, and tonight we have Ed. Now, Ed is an astonishing uh, individual. He's been on this for a year. He's 38 years old. He was due to die by the age that he was 40. People will be able to watch tonight and see the amazing recovery that he has made.
1: Indeed they could
2: on News Habit 6 that night.
1: This is the miracle. This is um, the drug that saved my life. And 24 hours later, on Thursday, another sufferer, Isaiah Twos, made this plea.
0: If I could ask people anything, um, just send a Judith Collins, um, anyone, anything, it would just be to ask them, why don't they care? Why is money more important than the people that
1: are dying? But the situation of all cystic fibrosis sufferers here hasn't changed much since last August, when Bella Powell was the focus of the first News Hub campaign for
2: the drug. I have seen the results with my own eyes, and Bella describes them as more than a miracle.
1: Now, in last year's reports, Patrick Gower himself explained that Pharmac couldn't even buy Trikafta for everyone, even if they wanted to. At that time,
2: Vertex must apply to sell the drug here, and Pharmac says it hasn't yet had an application from Vertex to fund Trikafta.
1: And this week, Patrick Gower told News Hub viewers this:
2: In a heartbreaking development, six months on, Vertex has still not come through on that, stalling the process.
1: No change there then either. So what was the major development in this investigation? On Wednesday night, Patrick Gower told viewers this.
2: This is big. Pharmac's saying it could go over its billion-dollar budget and ask for a direct boost to get these blue and orange pills, which currently cost over $430,000 a year. So what's your message to Vertex then?
0: You know, we're really interested in this medicine. We want the application. We're keenly waiting for that application to come.
2: And
1: Vertex told NewsHub on Wednesday it would come to a meeting about all this. But while Patrick Gower talked vaguely about red tape at its worst, letting down the patients whose time is running out, the crucial thing now, just as it was last August, remains the unfeasible expense of Trikafta and the monopoly pricing of its maker. It's in pharmaceutical companies' interests to charge as much as the big markets will bear while their new medicines are covered by patents. And it's the same in other countries where there are also campaigns urging Vertex to offer cut price or compassionate access to the drug. Recently, the Boston-based Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, an independent watchdog on drug costs, said that Vertex has leveraged its monopoly to set a price that adds up to many millions of dollars over the lifetime of an average cystic fibrosis patient. And its medical director, Dr. David Rind, said this.
3: When the price of any service throughout the health system is way out of proportion to its ability to improve lives, it can actually cause more unseen harm to other unknown patients who can no longer afford their health care.
1: Now there he's talking about the US, but it's the same here with Pharmac and our finite health budgets. But when the ICER in the US urged American insurers and agencies to resist paying Vertex's high price, it got an angry response from cystic fibrosis patient groups. Now there's little that Pharmac or Patrick Gower or News Hub can do about newly approved medicines being released in the US at sky-high cost and then in Europe and then eventually cascading down through other territories as deals are done with national drug-buying agencies and countries with large public health systems. And that's a harder story to tell, but one the viewers would have appreciated as well as cystic fibrosis patients. Last week on Media Watch, we also heard, just briefly, how efforts to fast-track permission for the Wiggles and 12 of their crew to come for their We Are All Fruit Salad tour wasn't exactly applauded by many in the media, given the tight squeeze on places in managed isolation and quarantine for Kiwis coming home. COVID
4: is supposed to have levelled us all. Those amongst us who are the most poorly paid
3: have shown just how vital they are. So it really galls me when I see the Prime Minister saying, she will look at finding a practical solution to getting the bloody Wiggles into the country. And the
1: story of Kiwi Trev Ponting dying of brain cancer in Japan but denied a spot in MIQ heightened irritation about the bloody Wiggles, until officials changed their minds about Trev Ponting last weekend. How did they get this decision so wrong?
0: Yeah, I know. It, it's a really heartbreaking one, and I am really glad that they eventually let him back in. I've got to say, though, the reality is that this is probably just one of a number of awful, heartbreaking situations.
1: NZME's Francis Cook was right about that, but not all cases have had universal sympathy from the media. In fact, one family this week got quite a going over from the media, as Hayden Donnell now explains. On Tuesday, Stuff ran a story hinting at a
3: mini-scandal inside our MIQ facilities. COVID-19. Breakers star Tom Abercrombie's family do MIQ at $3 million home after complaint about hotel. The Herald followed suit with a similarly themed headline. Wife and children of New Zealand basketball star Tom Abercrombie in managed isolation at $3 million home in Auckland.
6: Both stories pointed out that the MIQ exemption came soon after Tom Abercrombie's partner, Monique Abercrombie, tagged Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern into a tweet complaining about mould in her hotel room. Taken together, they conjured the impression that the officials in charge of our managed isolation facilities may be doling out special treatment to the rich and well-connected. That was kind of timely. The media had just finished reporting on the Wiggles' efforts to secure MIQ spots ahead of their planned New Zealand tour. The entertainers managed to chugger-chugger their big red cars into managed isolation despite failing to book in advance. Now it seemed more high-profile people have been granted liberties not afforded to the ordinary plebs flying back into the country. Predictably, the stories provoked some anger. Social media posts pointed out that the situation reeked of one rule for the rich and another for the rest of us. But as the day wore on, new details emerged which painted the MIQ exception in a different light. In a sometimes painful 11-minute grilling on RNZ's checkpoint on Wednesday, Tom Abercrombie explained that two of his children have special needs, and his family's MIQ exception was supported by medical professionals.
0: So we have two um, kids who have special needs, and I, I don't really want to go into detail of what they, those are, but um, you know, we had supporting evidence from their GPs and doctors and other specialists um, to provide evidence on why it wouldn't be safe for them or for others to you know, isolate in a facility. Um, and we sent that application off. Um, and at the end of the day, we, when the opportunity came up to, to grab a voucher and get home, um, without having the results of that, we just had to take that opportunity when we could and you know, wait for that process to finish once they got back to New Zealand.
6: On News Hub at 6, Michael Morrow reported that both children are autistic. Autism NZ Chief Executive Dane Dugan told him that the decision to grant special arrangements was justified given the family's circumstances. There needs to be flexibility in the system for our community. Um, With the autistic community, getting people
1: out of their comfortable environment can be really, really difficult.
6: In light of the Abercrombie children's health needs, the headlines from Stuff and the Herald seem harsh or even unfair. Critics have questioned the implication the family was getting special treatment, as well as the decision to foreground the cost of their home. Media commentator Russell Brown said headlining that price was extraneous and amounted to rage bait. It was also a little misleading. Though a $3 million price tag would seem to denote outrageous luxury, that impression is a little less accurate than it should be. Thanks to Auckland's housing crisis, $3 million is about three times the city's median house price and roughly 1.5 times the price of an average property where the Abercrombie family lives in Devonport. In an interview with Heather duplessis allen on Talk ZB, Tom Abercrombie also decried the focus on his house and career.
0: My status as a, a sports person or the value of our house or anything like that is completely irrelevant to the whole topic at hand and uh, you know, I can imagine it's only been done to try and you know, generate some headlines and clickbait which is you know, brutal for us to read as a family and people that we know um, when it's clearly not true.
6: In the end, this wasn't really a story about rich people leaning on MIQ officials to get a sweeter quarantine arrangement. It was about a family with special health needs being granted a little bit of compassion. It was about bureaucrats being a bit flexible.
1: And when you put it that way, it doesn't really sound like that much of a story at all. Hayden Donnell there on The Breakers. Basketball player Tom Abercrombie frustrated about media coverage hinting at special treatment for him and his family in managed isolation. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team this weekend. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we're back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.